It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Welcome back, everybody. Good to have you here. I'm excited. We have Francis Jackson on the show today talking about veterans and veterans benefits. Um, you guys are probably familiar with Francis. He's a regular contributor here on the show. Francis Jackson is an attorney who specializes in disability law for those seeking veterans disability benefits as well as social security disability benefits. Founding partner of Jackson McNichol, he has been featured on NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox network affiliates around the country. He's most recently appeared as a guest of Ben Glass on the Consumer Advocate Show discussing benefits for veterans and Social Security disability benefits and how his practice allows him to make a difference in the lives of people facing disabilities. He has long been, he has been quoted in USA Today and is listed in Cambridge's Who's Who. Mr. Jackson was honored by the National Academy of Bestselling Authors with a Quilly Award in September of 2012. And he was also inducted in 2017 into America's Most Trusted Lawyers for its outstanding work in disability, disability law. Francis Jackson, welcome back. Thanks, Bert. Always a pleasure to be here with you. It's always good to have you. I'm excited. I, you know, I've been thinking about something. Uh, you know, on the show, we've talked a couple of times about uh, veterans' educational benefits and this is one of those areas because there are so many benefits that when you think of veterans' benefits, uh, this one doesn't necessarily leap out. I mean, yes, uh, I guess if you're thinking of GI Bill, I guess that, that uh, kind of dovetails into that. But uh, anyway, so my thought or my first question for today is, is there anything new regarding veterans' educational benefits? There is, Bert. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a... Uh... There's an interesting decision from the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals about veterans' benefits. What, uh, what you may remember is there are different iterations of the GI Bill. There was, um, at one point, the one called the Montgomery GI Bill, and then after 9-11, that was replaced with one that offered additional benefits. So what, um, what's happened here is that typically – the, um, the service folks and the VA have told veterans that they had to choose between <clears throat> benefits under one bill or the other. And what, uh, what happened in this case at the Federal Circuit is we have a gentleman, Mr. Ruddesill, who had paid into the Montgomery GI Bill while he was an enlisted person in the Army between 2000 and 2002, and then served in the National Guard 2000 to 2004 to 2005, got wounded in Iraq, left the service, completed college, and then went back as an Army officer from 2007 to 2011. And, of course, after 9-11, uh, he was accruing benefits under the post-9-11 GI Bill. So Mr. Rodasil decided that <clears throat> he wanted to uh, return to the Army as a chaplain so he applied to go to the Divinity School at Yale University, and he argued that he should get benefits under both bills because he had served in these two separate periods. 
uh, and then he should get the, the maximum of 48 months. And what happened was he had used up part of his uh, eligibility, 25 of the, the 36 months under the Montgomery GI Bill, when he went back and got his undergraduate degree. <clears throat> Excuse me. He hadn't used any under the, uh, the post-9-11 GI Bill. And he said he should be entitled to the, the balance of the 48-month maximum. Sure. And the VA said, no, oh, no, no. <clears throat> so uh, they, they said, no, you only get benefits under one or the other. <clears throat> Pardon my cough. I've got these wicked allergies today. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, anyway, so they told him he couldn't have benefits under the uh, – under the other bill. And uh, that went to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. He got turned down, went to the Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims, and they said, you know, we think Credicill is right. He's got two separate periods of service. He should get the, the benefits from each one. The VA, of course, did not agree, since that would make them liable for greater amounts of uh, expenditures. So they appealed it up to the Federal Circuit, and the Federal Circuit uh, split two to one, but holding in Mr. Russell's favor by a two to one margin and said that, yeah, he served in two separate periods. He ought to get the maximum amount of benefits and it should uh, uh, therefore uh, be the obligation of the department to pay for the, the uh, remaining 23 uh, month period. So that's, uh, that's a very interesting ruling. It's the first time any court has has said that separate periods of service might entitle you to benefits under uh, both uh, iterations of the GI Bill. You know, typically when uh, when somebody goes from one era of service to uh, to the other, uh, the the service people ask them to sign a form uh, that they created back in 2008, asking them to give up their Montgomery GI benefits under the other um, under the other um, post 9/11 benefit rules, but uh, the attorney in this case argued that the the form doesn't actually meet the requirements and that Mr. Rodasso was still entitled to benefits, and the court agrees. So uh, that's uh, one of those holdings that probably doesn't affect thousands and thousands and thousands of, of uh, veterans, but uh, it affects some, and, you know, anything that gets people more educational benefits, I think, is a great thing. Absolutely. I think, look, you know, you and I have a, a, a soft spot for our veterans. I think that anything that helps our veterans, helps them get uh, more education, helps them get more benefits, is a good thing. Our government, bless their heart, spends a massive amount of money on a lot of stupid things uh, and and sometimes uh, they sponsor some in, again in my opinion some ridiculous uh, what do you call it uh, experiments for lack of better terms uh, surveys uh, studies uh, and, and then they fund these uh, these war efforts uh, which again cost trillions and then when it's time to take care of our men and women, they, they sometimes like to renege on that. So I agree with you. I think it's great. I, I suspect Mr. Rutherfield does too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me ask you this. 
Um, again, uh, this is, uh, what do you call it, going down memory row, I guess, today. Uh, so so uh, in the past, we've, you, you and I have also talked about uh, deportation of veterans uh, who are citizens of other countries, um, you know, these are veterans that served our country and then maybe later on had an infraction. Uh, typically, it's, uh, it's been drug-related or a lot of them have been drug-related uh, because they're self-medicating, dealing with PTSD and some other stuff that they're dealing with. Um, and so a lot of these veterans have been uh, de- deported. So any, any, uh, any updates on this? Any progress on, on this situation? Yeah, yeah. There's there's some uh, there's some potentially good things on the horizon. You you never you never know with the horizon of politics, but there's, <laughs> there there are some potentially good things. Um, there's a bill sponsored by uh, both a Republican and a Democrat that was introduced um, last week uh, called the uh, Repatriate Our Patriots Act. You know they they love these names, but yeah. the, the short. The short version is that a military veteran who never attained citizenship but but served honorably in the service um, and who was deported for a uh, nonviolent crime uh, could return to the U.S. under this bill. And there's a a similar bill introduced by uh, a a disabled veteran, uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth from Illinois, uh, in the Senate. So we got the House version and the Senate version. They're not exactly alike, but essentially they would both make sure that if you fall in that category of having served honorably in, in our armed services and then been deported for a uh, nonviolent crime, you would be eligible to uh, return to the uh, to the United States and you know it's it's a bigger number than I thought. Um, the Defense Department says that about five thousand non-U.S. citizens enlist in the military every year. Um, wow! And I, I, I wouldn't have thought the number was that high, but that's that surprised me. Yeah, so, that, that that surprised me too. And you put it, but it goes to show you uh, that you have these people here that love America and and they're trying to show their loyalty and, 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 and earn their, their, what do you call it? Their stay, earn their green card or whatever the the situation calls for. Uh, Joining the military in defense of our country is not an easy thing. I agree. And one of the things that's, um, that's frustrating, the, uh, those folks are automatically eligible for expedited naturalization for themselves and their family. But the, the process is often confusing and complicated. And uh, in a fair number of cases, folks have left the service believing they've fulfilled their obligations to become citizens only to learn later that they hadn't. And one of the, one of the problems as, uh, as you point out is that, even these nonviolent crimes like drug and alcohol offenses that can stem from PTSD or other injuries can result in deportation. And the the frustrating part is that um, ICE under the uh, recent administration, even though they were supposed to consider service when deporting veterans, they haven't been. 
and there's an extra screening process that they're supposed to use to deport veterans who don't have citizenship, but uh, ICE has been ignoring that too. So uh, the, uh, the good news is that under this new bill, anyone who was honorably discharged and was not convicted of a serious crime like you know rape or murder or child abuse or whatever could go through the naturalization process while still living abroad. As you know, most of the time, that's a, that's a problem, but Department of Human Services, uh, sorry, Department of Homeland Security would be required to track them and their families and provide information on the citizenship process to them. And it would also require the Attorney General to cancel or rescind any removal order that affects any eligible veteran and change his or her status to legal permanent resident as long as they hadn't committed a violent crime. So. Uh, those, I think, are all good things. Um, you may remember that we talked about many, uh, many months ago with a Marine veteran, uh, Marco Chavez, who got deported to Mexico in 2002 after being convicted of a minor offense like this. And it took him 15 years till 2017 when his fight to return to the U.S. So anything that makes that simpler for folks has got to be an improvement, I figure. <laughs> You know, and again, this is one of those things, and I, don't, I didn't mean to laugh. It's just, you know, it's just uh, how you said it there. But, yeah, absolutely. Anything that improves these circumstances is, is important. But it also shines a spotlight on how important the work that you guys do there uh, and, and how difficult it is for our veterans to navigate the – the situation. I mean, sometimes, I mean, and obviously this deportation stuff is a lot more complicated, but you and I have talked several times and you've told me stories of people who have waited 10, 15, 20 years to get their benefits approved. You know, it, it, it can be, uh, what do you call it? Uh, seem like a lifetime waiting for the stuff to go through the process. It can. We we just got a. I, I I was it was heartwarming. We just got a five star Google review from a client who uh, had uh, been with us since 2013. He finally got 100% benefits all the way back, and he he couldn't have written a nicer review. I mean, he, he just was very uh, laudatory, and we were very pleased that that he was so pleased. Sure. But, but going back is uh, going back to this. Uh, uh, immigration and deportation stuff. Um, the the good news is that uh, the VA Secretary Dennis McDonough and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas um, had a joint announcement earlier this month of new initiatives to reach out to these veterans and their families to identify those folks, communicate with them about how uh, they can uh, uh, apply for eligibility for veterans' benefits and uh, access to uh, the uh, vaccine against the coronavirus and also uh, pursue uh, citizenship if they, if they wish to do that. So it's, it's, uh, it's nice to see that uh, some, some good things are happening and there's some sunshine on the horizon. Absolutely, absolutely. And I want to just uh, interject this, your website real quick. If you guys have questions regarding benefits, if you have been declined, if you just want to get a second opinion, check out VeteransBenefits.com, VeteransBenefits.com. 
uh, and and uh, Francis and his team will check out your stuff and will point you in the right direction. Um, I, I want to ask you this. Um, there, there's been a, uh, we call it a major issue for veterans applying for benefits. Um, and, and my understanding is that it has been, uh, I guess, delayed in, in, the, VA, in the VA system. What, what's happening with this? I think uh, what you're referring to, Bert, is um, the, the law changed a few years ago, it became effective in February 2019 to, to modify the veterans benefits application system to um, try to streamline it some, make it a little, uh, little faster. Um, yes. And what's, what's going on now is the VA is running kind of two tracks of claims. The uh, the ones that were pending from before February 2019, they refer to as legacy cases, and the current ones they refer to under the uh, Appeals Management and Improvement uh, Act, the AMA. Um, and with the legacy appeals, they had promised Congress that they would wrap those up by 2022. But uh, what they have now reported to Congress is that's not going to be possible with all of the problems um, from uh, the outbreak of COVID and the, the pandemic and the resulting office closures and staff unavailability and everything else um, over the last year and a half, they uh, are not going to meet their goal of 2022. What, what they did when, the, when that legislation was put into effect in 2017 to start in 2019, the, uh, the VA had promised Congress they would wrap up all these old cases by 2022. But um, that just has not been possible. So they're now telling Congress that they are hoping to resolve the backlog by 2023. And in fairness to the VA, they've, they've made a real dent. Um, in November of 2017, when that legislation was passed, there were 472,000 um, of those appeals pending, almost half a million. And they've now got it down under 135,000, which is a significant improvement by any count. But they just uh, have thrown up their hands and said that with all the problems they've had over the last year, they can't make 2023. So um, what's, what's uh, going on now is that they're still offering veterans the option of changing from the old system at certain points to the newer system. Uh, and so they're eliminating some of those cases that way. But uh, Cheryl Mason, who's the chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals, uh, told the uh, House Committee on Veterans the other day that um, the delays in uh, examinations, because a lot of doctors wouldn't see people during the uh, pandemic, and the uh, delays in uh, getting records in certain cases uh, has just made it impossible for them to wrap up these, uh, these cases. And so they've got this 100,000-odd number uh, left. But, um, you know, it's, uh, as, as you were saying, um, it's been a, a long process for a lot of people. Um, the, the, um, the record, uh, I, I understand, is 
25 years and 27 separate uh, VA decisions to adjudicate one appeal. But uh, I, I have to say I have not been personally involved in one that lasted more than 20 years. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's been a, it's been a, uh, a real issue over time. And this newer system uh, does seem to be pushing things a little faster. They, they can still get caught up in the same cycle of being denied and then remanded and then denied and then remanded and so on. But, um, they're they're moving them faster at the initial level. Uh, the the uh, the average on a new claim now is uh, less than 100 days, and the uh, the average for a kind of a, a second look at that, what they call higher level review, if uh, people opt for that, is also under 100 days. Um, still, the the bulk of the appeals, of course, end up going up to the Board of Veterans Appeals, and that's still running a couple of years to to get to them, but. All in all, they've, they've made progress, um, and so uh, you know it's a it's a good thing. And uh, it's sure, I mean, yep, yep. You know, progress is good. Yep. And it's unfortunate know. that they they got held up by uh, by COVID, but they are they are trying. Right. You know, inch by inch is better than. It's better than uh, you know nothing. So I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take some progress over no progress. Let me ask you this. Uh, okay, so uh, when it comes to these legacy appeals, are there any other problems that are contributing to the delays? Well, one of the things that is contributing in in uh, a fair number of cases actually is access to records. Uh, as mm. as you and I have talked about, one of the problems that veterans often have is being able to get the military records that show they served at a certain place at a certain time or involved in a certain event, whatever. And the uh, the House Oversight Committee uh, is now asking for a congressional hearing because uh, there's a terrible backup in getting records from the National Archives uh, Administration. Um, they've got half a million requests pending, and the uh, the bulk of those are at the National Personnel Records Center in uh, St. Louis. It's mostly um, about uh, getting military records, uh, even even getting a copy of somebody's uh, DD-214 showing their separation uh, was honorable, and so they're eligible for benefits is is uh, is being delayed. And they were they were already not moving very fast out there, but with uh, with coronavirus. Um, a lot of uh, federal workers were sent home, and because this facility is all paper records, they, wow. they couldn't remotely. So you're you're talking about a situation where people have to be physically present and access paper records. So, you know, when they sent them home under COVID, that was that was the end of that. So there's a there's a ton of these requests that are waiting, and. You know, both both sides of the aisle are are, uh, are yelling at them, uh, saying this this needs to be fixed. And the um, the, the folks at archives are, are trying to fix it. I mean, it's not it's not that they're ignoring this problem. They they've hired extra people. Um, they've uh, uh, now put on a second shift now that they're they're allowed to be uh, to be back in there. But stop and think about this. 
the NPRC facility in St. Louis alone holds over 2 million cubic feet of paper records. So, you know, they get tons and tons of requests for these records, and a lot of them are for veterans or their families needing to prove honorable service uh, for benefits, for burial benefits, for homeless veterans programs. Um, you know, one example that uh, was cited in some of the media discussion is a lady named Susanna Melodson who's uh, uh, been trying to get her husband's military records so that she can show she's eligible for a widow's pension. And the poor lady's 90 years old. You know, she needs these records now. It's not, not like she can wait 20 years. So it's, right. a, it's a real you know, it's a real problem. They they are they are trying to help, but it's it's tough. And when you know you're you're talking about, as you said, a million square feet of paper records. Uh, you know, when somebody hears that our that our government still has these you know paper records that they're still being, you know, I guess used or depended on. It's just incredible. It, it blows people away. It blows people away that, that we have a paper system that our government relies on, and it blows them away when they hear how enormous this problem is. It's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and All right, so let, so let me ask you this. Any other, any other problems, any other things that are – that we should bring up. Well, there's there's one other factor here that nobody likes to talk about, but um, there have been significant suggestions, even accusations, that um, black veterans have been disproportionately um, denied benefits in some VA offices and. There is currently a lawsuit going on brought by the uh, Yale University um, Veterans Benefits Clinic. It's handled by law students at Yale, um, representing the Black Veterans Project and the Natural Vet- Veterans Council for Legal Redress. And what their what their lawsuit is about is asking for information from various elements of the Department of Veterans Affairs showing how uh, black and Caucasian veterans have been treated. Um, And the the records have have been provided in part, but um, some elements of the VA, for example, the Board of Veterans Appeals, has not uh, provided any records in res- in response to the uh, to the lawsuit, and so it's um, it's an ongoing issue. Nobody really um, nobody really uh, can say definitively what's going on yet. But an initial analysis of the the data from what was turned over in 2018 um, showed significant disparity in disability benefits claims between veterans veterans who are uh, of, uh, of African descent and veterans overall. So there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, 
uh, interest in this lawsuit to see, you know, what's what's going on and uh, and where all this is going. You know, I, I have to say that I haven't seen much evidence of what I would view as obviously racist issues in veterans' benefits in most cases. But I, I did have one case in South Carolina that went on for a very long time, and it seemed pretty blatantly racist. Um, I, I don't want to suggest that this is representative of the VA as a whole, because I don't think it is. But what I think we are going to find when they get all the data is that certain VA offices, at least for a period of time, particularly in the 70s and into the 80s, um, were treating people in disparate ways. The, I, I, I had this one fellow from South Carolina, won the Bronze Star, actually won the Silver Star, excuse me, in, the, in Vietnam, and came back um, to the States, uh, continuing in the military, but reached a point where his PTSD was so bad that he, he, he couldn't be around gunfire, and they, they had assigned him as a... Uh, as a rifle instructor, you can imagine how well that was working for him. But um, uh, we had several decisions in his file where they said, well, the, the medical folks say he's got PTSD, but we're not convinced. You know, when you start seeing that kind of stuff, you really kind of raises an eyebrow. But I, I, I want to repeat that uh, those kinds of allegations of racism are, are a very sensitive issue, and I don't want to suggest it's endemic within the VA because I don't think that's true. I do think that there were some people in the VA at one point in time, may still be some of them, that um, may not have treated black veterans as fairly as some others. Sure, sure. And, and, and this is because uh, systems are run by people and people have biases and sometimes they have prejudice and sometimes they have they, they are races you know i mean it's people and, and all of us have stuff that we're dealing with and and you know and and maybe this was a racist individual who I don't know, it was empowered. Uh, maybe it was a person who was having a bad day. You, you just never know. But I have to agree with you. When a non-doctor, huh, somebody who's just off the cuff saying, hey, look, the medical, the medical professionals are saying it's PTSD, but uh, I don't believe it. Yeah, that's a red flag. That, 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 should, that, should, warn, that should be an alarm bell there. Uh, but, and I agree with you as well that, at least from the individuals that I've met that work on behalf of our veterans that work uh, for the VA. And I've not met a lot. Uh, you know, I know you, you probably met hundreds more because that's what you do. These people seem to a, they care. They really are. They're stuck in a system that is old and, uh, antiquated and they sincerely want to help our veterans i've not come across anyone that seemed uh to have an interior uh, uh, a different motive or that was racist or uncaring the the probably 20 or 30 people that i've met have all seemed to be sincerely uh, concerned about delivering 
benefit and making sure that our veterans are taken care of. But again, we're talking about humans, so every now and then you're going to have the odd duck or the bad apple that kind of spoils the bunch. That's true, Bert. And I, I just want to say so that we're all all clear on this that um, we we took those case we took that case up it took took some time and had to jump through some hoops, but um, the the gentleman got all his his benefits back to uh, the date of his service. So you know it, it's it's certainly not um, that that the whole VA was out to get him, but it right. certainly uh, it did appear that there were some some questionable decisions back in the earlier days. Absolutely, absolutely, and again, it's it's unfortunate, but it's human, it's people, uh, and anyway. So, uh, congratulations on getting that veteran taken care of, uh, and and uh, yeah, I'm again, I, I say this all the time. I'm so grateful for the work that you do and the fact that you have a team there at VeteransBenefits.com to help our veterans because. These, these people, these brave men and women who put themselves in harm's way to protect us should not have to come home and fight another battle, but unfortunately, they do. Not all of them, but a, 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 you know, a, a large portion of veterans have to fight to get their benefits. And if it wasn't for VeteransBenefits.com, there'd be so many people out there suffering. So you guys do important work. Thank you, Bert. We, we're, we're proud of what we do, and we appreciate your, your comments. Well, Francis, we're out of time. I want to thank you again for stopping by. Always a pleasure to have you here. Looking forward to have you back again soon, my friend. Well, my pleasure, Bert, as always. Thanks again. You bet. Good stuff there from veterans lawyer Francis Jackson, veteransbenefits.com. Do me a favor. Let's share this episode with everyone you know. Let's help our veterans. Let's help their families. Maybe you know a veteran and, and or their family. You know, let them know about veteransbenefits.com. They may not need the help ever, and that's great, but they may come a time where they do need to help, maybe need a second opinion. The system, as you heard today, is slow and bogged down. It's still using paper in a lot of areas. Paper! Anyway... Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for stopping by today. Thank you so much for helping out. Thank you for sharing this episode and helping out our veterans. As always, my friends, remember you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch and check out our website at moneyforlunch.com.